Several years ago, my family and I found ourselves on a conveyor belt. We were at a public attraction that was so popular that they actually used a conveyor belt to move people along so that we all didn't get bunched up looking at the things that we were so interested in looking at. We were in London, England, and we were looking at the crown jewels. All of the precious metals, precious stones, uh, crafted into elegant pieces belonging to the Queen of England. We saw necklaces, bracelets, tiaras, scepters, and of course, the crowns of the Queen. A crown is not simply though, precious metal, precious stones put together. Rather, a crown represents the value and the status ascribed to the one who wears it. A crown reveals what the wearer represents and how they will, re how they will rule. When Jesus walked the earth, the only crown he ever wore was nothing like the crowns that the Queen of England has. The only crown that Jesus wore was a crown of thorns. The Roman soldiers, when they were taking him to be crucified, heard that he'd been called the King of the Jews. And so before they nailed him to the cross, they mockingly took thorns, wove it into a crown, and pressed it onto his skull. So why would Jesus, the Son of God, the, the one the Bible calls King of Kings, why would he wear such a crown? Why would God allow this to happen? Well, the ancient... Uh, first century church planter, the Apostle Paul, helps us understand why Jesus would wear a crown of thorns in his letter to the Corinthians. And so we're going to take a look at that today, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, 18 to 25. Those are the verses we're going to focus on. But it's important for us to look at the few verses before this passage, just to give us some context to this whole discussion that the Apostle Paul is going to have concerning uh, Jesus and his crucifixion and what type of king that he was. So I'm going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. And here's what it says. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united and in the same, with the same mind and the same purpose. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, brothers and sisters. And what I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to, to Cephas, or the Apostle Peter, uh, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Well, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, and beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. But then verse 17, which is key for us. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. All right, the city of Corinth, uh, in which the church to which Paul is writing existed was uh, an important city just west of the great city of Athens in Greece. And it was a city of much importance with a lot of important people. In fact, it was a city that uh, historians will tell us was often obsessed 
with looking important. People were focused very much on building their own reputation, building their own social status. And one way that you could build status was by associating with the right people, associating with the wealthy, with the popular, with the powerful, with the, the celebrities, uh, especially celebrity orators in that time. The closer you were with the one who was esteemed, then your own status would go up. It was sort of like being a member of a, a celebrity entourage. You're borrowing from somebody else's status to elevate your own status. And, and the culture of Corinth was getting into the church at Corinth. Some of the church members had bought into this type of thinking. And Paul says this is causing quarrels. It's causing factions. It's, it's causing divisions. They were actually taking some of the Bible teachers from that church or who had been influential in that church and making them into celebrities. Now, it wasn't the teachers who were elevating themselves to be celebrities because one of them mentioned is Paul and there was another Apollos and uh, Cephas or the apostle Peter and Jesus, of course. They're not making themselves into celebrities, but people began to identify themselves. Well, I, I'm, I belong to the group that listens to Paul. I belong to the group that listens to Apollos and so forth. So this wasn't just about preference of their favorite Bible teacher or who they enjoyed listening to most at King Street Church. Do I like listening to Pastor Dave? Uh, or do I like listening to Pastor Al or to Kristen? Or It's not about preferences. This was about if I can identify myself with a particular person they, they are one with particular status, and because of that, I'm going to elevate my status. This was all about uh, trying to grow in their social influence and social status, and they began to pit themselves against one another, and it was just, Paul thought it was absolutely ridiculous. He begins to confront this type of spiritual immaturity. They thought themselves to be spiritually mature, and Paul basically said, you're acting like kids. And so Paul begins to challenge this seeking of status, this seeking of reputation and powerful social influence. And instead, Paul says he came to Corinth when he originally planted the church there uh, with a message that would not really impress people, and it certainly wouldn't elevate his status. So he says, I didn't come with eloquent wisdom. In other words, the wisdom of words, literally. Uh, in other words, I didn't come with a celebrity performance. Instead, I came with the message of the cross. So he comes with a message that cuts directly against status seeking, the message of Jesus and his crucifixion. And in verse 18, Paul expands on why he came with that message and why it's part of the message that he continues to carry. And this is going to be the focus of the message here. Verse 18, for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise and where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. 
For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. There are two ways of viewing the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, says Paul in this text. The message of, cross, of the cross is either going to be viewed as foolish and a sign of weakness, or the message is going to be viewed as a revelation of the wisdom and power of God acting in this world. Uh, those who view it as foolish are ironically on their way to ruin. Those who view the cross as God's powerful action are, Paul says, in the process of being saved. The Corinthian Christians were followers of Jesus. They'd given their lives over to Jesus. They trusted their lives to him. And yet they had attitudes that were seeping into the church that didn't align with the message of the cross. And so Paul in this passage reminds them of three truths that every Christian needs to accept deep down. Three truths we need to accept. First one is this, accept that the message of the cross will be seen as foolish. When we first read Paul's words here, and he's talking about not wanting to be wise and avoiding using eloquent wisdom and the wisdom of words, we might think that uh, he and God is against wisdom and learning, but that's not really Paul's point at all, and it's certainly not God's attitude. In fact, throughout Scripture, there's an encouragement to gain knowledge and to gain wisdom. There's a whole series of books in uh, the Old Testament, book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, all about the importance of gaining wisdom and knowledge in life and how important that is in God's world. But what's going on here is that God is opposing, according to Paul, a certain form of wisdom that humans think is wise, right? So it's not opposing wisdom in general, but a certain form of thinking that humans think is wise. Typically, as we live in this world, uh, something that we see often is that those with status and power, with wealth, with celebrity, uh, those with influence, they get what they want. They tend to get ahead in life. And so we wisely assume you know, wisely in quotation marks, we wisely assume that pursuing that type of status and pursuing that type of powers should be a, an ultimate goal in life, or at least one of our main goals in life. We consider it to be wise if uh, we pursue those things and we listen to those who give us wisdom on how to pursue those things. And the Corinthian church was buying into that type of false wisdom. And in contrast, Paul reminds the Corinthians that the very story of Jesus involves him going to a cross. It involves a crucifixion. And Paul doesn't downplay this. He doesn't set it aside. And he's explaining to the Corinthians, this is actually the core of what uh, we, we stand for. It's the core of our proclamation. It, the crucifixion is central to the story of the Jesus whom we follow. And this is what they needed to accept, that Christians believe a message that the world will simply view as foolish. Now, why does the world consider the story of the crucifixion to be foolish? A couple of reasons. First one is this. Crucifixion in the ancient world was a public humiliation by the powerful. 
to both Jewish people and Greeks, basically anyone who was part of Greek culture or uh, spoke the Greek language, so pretty much anyone who wasn't Jewish, crucifixion was utterly embarrassing. It was, it was shameful. And we're so far removed, you know, 2,000 years later from uh, seeing and hearing about crucifixions that the reality of crucifixion, we, we don't really um, understand its significance or appreciate it like those in the first century would have. First of all, crucifixion involved being nailed to a cross, being nailed to um, a wooden pole with a cross beam, and it's terrible physical torture for the person enduring this, a horrific way to die. I mean, you have nails that are going to be hammered through your wrists and through the bones of your feet, and the person who was crucified hung on a cross, which sometimes we're told hang there for days as they gasped for air and... Uh, portrayed, you know, really naked in front of everybody who was walking by. The victim would eventually die from shock or asphyxiation as they tried to, you know, raise themselves up so they could, they could breathe and eventually they would lose strength and, and die in that way. So terrible physical torture, but beyond that, and probably more important socially, is that the intent of crucifixion was never simply about physical torture. I mean, there's other ways to handle that. You could go back to a private room and torture somebody. The Romans weren't really interested in that. Crucifixion was public humiliation. The person who was crucified was stripped of all dignity, all of their humanity, and they were hung helpless for everyone to see. And a crucifixion was really a message about who had power and who did not. Historian Tom Holland, not the actor in Spider-Man, but a historian, uh, says this about the crucifixion. Crucifixion was not merely a punishment. It was a means to achieving dominance, a dominance felt as a dread in the guts of the subdued. Terror of power was the index of power. That was how it had always been and always would be. It was the way of the world. And this is why Paul says, in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. So from a Jewish point of view, a, a crucified person was somebody cursed by God. In fact, there's a verse in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, that says anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. And that's how they understood what happened to any Jewish person who got crucified by the Romans. So to them, Jesus was obviously not the Messiah of God, not the one they had been waiting for. He might have claimed to be a Messiah, but then he would just be a fake. And God showed he was a fake by allowing him to be hung on a cross, cursed by God. I mean, the Messiah that the Jewish people were expecting certainly would not end up crucified, humiliated. Instead, he would be an unstoppable force and would overthrow the Romans and liberate the Jewish people from that type of oppression. That's the Messiah that they were looking for. That's the Messiah they were expecting. And Paul says the Jewish people, they, they always are seeking signs from God to know if he's active in the world. And the idea that Christians were proposing, that Paul was proposing, that God did give them a sign. It's the sign of Jesus on a cross, well, to them, that was preposterous. 
God was nowhere near Jesus in their minds when he hung on the cross. The very notion was ridiculous and even offensive to them. Paul says it's an idea they just stumble over. They can't get past it. And what about the Greeks? Ancient Greeks and the Romans, for that matter, would have also thought the idea of the gods being on the side of a crucified Savior to be utter nonsense. I mean, the Greek gods and the Roman gods were never submissive to humans. They could never lose to human beings. In fact, they showed their superiority by intimidating those with less power and crushing their enemies. And in fact, that's how the Greeks and Romans thought they ought to live as well. They should model the gods and so intimidate and bully and crush your enemies. And if you had victory, that meant the gods were on your side. That's worldly wisdom, and it makes sense. That's something that you should seek out. At least that's how the Greeks and the Romans thought. But to associate the gods with crucifixion was absurd. I mean, crucifixion, it was disgusting physically, socially, and spiritually. To proclaim that we should follow Jesus, who was the crucified one, was, as Paul says, utterly foolish. But there's another reason why the world thinks the cross is foolish. It's also because God opposes arrogance. So there's a spiritual side to this as well. Paul points out that the story of the cross is not the first time that God allowed himself to appear foolish in the face of human arrogance. Um, he quotes from the book of Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet who lived hundreds of years before Jesus. And in Isaiah's day, uh, the people had become unfaithful to God and the leaders of Jerusalem had looked for safety apart from listening to God. And Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the, dis the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Now, God's not out to destroy people. That's not his character, and that's certainly not his longer-term goal. But God will oppose what leads people to destruction. And sometimes what leads us to destruction is our own arrogance. God's not impressed with who and what we often find impressive. And God shows no respect for titles or education or social status or wealth or political power. As the book of James tells us, God is no respecter of persons. In fact, many of those privileges that people sometimes enjoy in life simply come from where they happen to be born or what family they are raised in. Rather, we learn in Scripture that God values all people equally. And so he's quite happy to appear foolish and unimpressive to those who think they are very important. God is happy to appear foolish to those who think they are wise in their own eyes. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? All rhetorical questions. In other words, Paul's saying, where, where is the expert? Where is the guru? Where is the motivational speaker? Has not God made the foolish had, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the 
world did not know God through wisdom. God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. Again, God's not against knowledge and expertise. What God opposes is arrogance. God's provided a way for human beings to connect with Him and to be part of His plans to fix what's broken in this world. And it's open to anyone, not just those with privilege, not just those with a certain social status. It's open to absolutely anyone, but it's a way that according to worldly wisdom seems rather foolish. It means following a crucified Messiah. So the Corinthians and we today need to accept the message of the cross will be seen as foolish to human wisdom. Second truth we need to accept is that the cross is a revelation of God's self-giving character and plan. The cross is a revelation of who God is and what he is up to. Verse 23 again, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. The cross is a revelation of who God is and what he is doing. The cross reveals God's long game, we can call it. The cross reveals the way God works in the world and what he's up to and his goals for human history. And Paul invites the Corinthians and he invites us to look from a larger or a higher perspective on what God was up to in and through the life of Jesus, to see things from God's longer-term point of view. I mean, in the short term, from a, from a human perspective, um, it makes sense to seek status and to seek power. Do whatever you can to get it. Use dishonesty. Use coercive words. Use bullying to get ahead. That's what the wisdom of this age, especially in the first century, that's what it told people to do. But what if that's not the way that reality really works? What if God designed the world and creation actually to work differently? What if what we assumed about wisdom is actually hurting us? An example of this might be found from medical history. I'm so glad that I live in a time where we uh, don't practice bloodletting. Uh, but bloodletting was considered to be a very wise way of curing all manner of illnesses for thousands of years. Approximately 3,000 years, human beings practiced bloodletting. This technique was popular among the, the ancient Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, right up through medieval times. Now, a lot of this all dates back to, without getting into too many details, it all dates back to a fellow named Hippocrates um, in ancient Greece who believed that everything was made up of four elements, earth, air, fire, water, and corresponding to this, human beings had four elements or four, he called it four humors in the body. They had blood and phlegm and yellow bile and black bile, and I don't really understand how they figured out all of that. But 
each humor in the body or element in the body corresponded to a particular organ within the body. And why we became ill, it was sometimes thought as if these humors became unbalanced, you need to rebalance them. And one way of doing that is you could let out blood because uh, as it was thought later on, maybe we just had too much blood or whatever the case is. And probably the views of that changed over the years. Um, and so, you know, a physician would come or somebody would come and, and cut a part of your body and bleed some blood, drain some blood. Uh, usually they would stop after you passed out. Um, one downside to bloodletting is that, that uh, sometimes people died. So that was a disadvantage. But as it turns out, as it turns out, uh, Hippocrates' view of reality was wrong. And so the whole idea that humans are made up of these four humors in our body, that, that's all inaccurate. And so it turns out bloodletting is probably not all that helpful. And fortunately, in the 19th century, a number of physicians did investigation and found out, oh, that actually turns out it's not all that helpful. I mean, we're, we're thinking about this today, we're thinking, what foolishness. I mean, isn't it sort of obvious to us today and to everybody that draining blood out of our body might not be particularly helpful? It might actually make things worse, but it wasn't obvious or self-evident. Through much of human history, in medieval times, if you suggested that, that bloodletting uh, was, was wrong, you'd be considered the one who is foolish. You would have been labeled the fool, even though... Knowing it was wrong would have been true medical wisdom. God knows far more than human beings do. He sees things through his uh, perfect ability to have knowledge, and he also views things through his perfect loving and just character as well. To repeat verse 25, for God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. In the long game, what seems wise now in this age, in this present age, is actually, from God's point of view, foolishness. And what seems foolish now and counterintuitive to the way of the world, in God's view, is actually the wise way of doing things. And God calls Christians to a longer-term future orientation. Paul, later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, calls this having the mind of Christ. So the cross reveals God's long game. The cross also reveals what God is truly like in his character. The cross elsewhere in Scripture is identified as a place where Jesus took our penalty for sin. But here, the focus is on it being a revelation of God's character. The cross reveals what God really feels about status-seeking and about the way that we treat other human beings. The cross reveals that God is not on the side of the bully. He is not on the side of the abuser. He is not on the side of the dictator. God is on the side of the humiliated, the oppressed, the broken. And one day, God is going to make everything right. The Bible talks about there being one day a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth, where everything will be as God wants it to be. Now, this way of thinking will appear as nonsense to those who want to coerce and bully in this age. But for those who are impacted by Jesus and his Holy Spirit, 
this way of following the God who allows his son to be crucified makes total sense and it's life-giving. Now, what gives us confidence to think this way, that we should trust and follow Jesus, the one who is crucified? Well, it's because God raised Jesus, this crucified one, from death. God put his stamp of approval on Jesus as revealing God's character and will. And so we need to accept the cross is a revelation of God's self-giving character and plan. The last truth that we need to accept and that Paul wanted the Corinthians to accept is that the Christian life in word and actions is a proclamation of Christ crucified. Paul says we preach Christ crucified, not just I preach Christ crucified as a preacher for the good news of Jesus, but we this is what all Christians ought to preach. We preach, we proclaim Christ crucified. We're to proclaim Christ crucified with our words, but really with our entire lives. So what we think, what we speak, and all of our actions. Following Jesus means by the Spirit's strength, being willing to participate with God in giving ourselves sacrificially, just like the one that we claim to follow, Jesus, the crucified one. It means being willing to put aside coercive methods and put aside seeking status, the things that the world might use to gain the reputation, the acclaim, the status that they're seeking. It means putting aside our own privileges and rights for the sake of others. And it even means being willing to be considered foolish by the world, at least foolish for the right things, not just because of things that we've done that are actually are foolish. The early church understood what it meant to worship a crucified Savior, and historians tell us because of this, they turned the world upside down. Early Christians behaved in ways that the Romans and the Greeks just could not understand. It seemed absurd to them. Unlike the, the broader society in which Christians lived for the first at least two to three centuries, uh, they demonstrated a very different way of living. They lived by a different value system than everyone else around them. Unlike society around them, for example, they valued all human beings and demonstrated this in really radical ways. They treated women better than women were treated in broader society. They treated children better than children were treated in broader society. Christians would go to the local dumps where people had disposed of their babies that they didn't want, often baby girls, and they would rescue them and adopt them into their own homes and raise them because they believed those babies were made by God and were precious to God. And when pandemics came to town, Christians were often the ones to reach out beyond their own families to help those who were sick. They didn't leave town like those who had enough money to do so, but they stayed. And sometimes simply by uh, providing food or some shelter or some water, they helped people recover. Sometimes though, Christians died in the process. They put their own lives at risk and people began to notice this different value system, and they began to realize there's something right about this. Tom Holland, who I mentioned before, um, 
historian of ancient Greece and Rome. Again, he's not the actor playing Spider-Man, but he is an expert on ancient Greek and Roman literature and culture. And uh, he talks how he talks about um, how he came to a realization at some point in his life that he recognized his values that he held had nothing in common with what he was reading in the ancient Roman and Greek writers. And so he began to ask himself, why is that? Like here I am reading these ancient Romans, reading these ancient Greeks and realizing I, I hold nothing in common with the values of these people. Why is that? Now, Tom Holland isn't a Christian. He's an agnostic. He considers himself an agnostic. But he said, I had to admit that the values that I'm holding that were very different from the ancient Greeks and Romans were really values about human dignity and human equality. That the values he, were hold, he was holding were really historically had come about due to Christianity. And so he wrote in his book called Dominion, how the Christian revolution remade the world. Um, he wrote in there really a, a story of Christian history in order to trace historically why it is that the Western world and Western culture has pretty much been Christianized in its values. Now, he's not saying everybody's a Christian. He doesn't consider himself a Christian. He's simply saying that the Western world has been so Christianized in its values that it's hard to act even as an agnostic or atheist or whoever uh, without Christian values. We just assume them. And so he tells the story in this book, Dominion, on how value assumptions such as universal human rights, he says those are no, by no means universally held, or they were by no means universally held for most of history. By no means are they self-evident, despite the U.S. Constitution saying we find it self-evident that all humans are made equal. It's not self-evident. If you had told an ancient Greek or Roman person that their slave should be given equal rights, they would have laughed in your face. So why do we think that humans today, for example, should have equal rights? Tom Holland argues that historically the world has been so impacted by Jesus, so impacted by those who proclaim the crucified Messiah, that it's impacted the values we hold today. Listen to what he says. To be a Christian is to believe that God became man and suffered a death as terrible as any mortal has ever suffered. And this is why the cross, that ancient implement of torture, remains what is, it has always been, the fitting symbol of the Christian revolution. It is the audacity of it, the audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse the glory of the creator of the universe. That serves to explain more surely than anything else the sheer strangeness of Christianity and of the civilization to which it gave birth. Our lives today as believers in Christ are to be a proclamation in our values, in our words, in our deeds that we serve the crucified Messiah. So the next time we face misunderstanding, the next time we face hurt, the next time we face uh, abuse and we want to take matters into our own hands and get revenge, Paul says, remember the crucified Messiah. A little sidebar here. This is not in any way implying that if somebody's 
undergoing considerable abuse in a household or by an employer or whatever it is that they are to stay there. But it does mean that we are not to use our power to humiliate or to do harm to others. The next time that we're tempted to coerce or to lie or to place our image or our brand over others and treating, and it makes us treat others with, uh, without proper dignity, remember that we serve a crucified Christ. And the next time someone is in need, remember we serve the crucified God. We preach Christ crucified, the one who wore a crown of thorns.